Thank you, Greg. There are some subjects, when brought up in conversation, that immediately make all parties involved distinctly uncomfortable. Men wearing skinny jeans, for example, or controversial political positions, gender roles, and so on. In many cases, context determines whether or not a particular subject is uncomfortable. Political issues are often more uncomfortable when the parties discussing them hold opposing viewpoints or ideologies. But one issue that seems to be uncomfortable regardless of the context is the issue of God's judgment. In recent years, certain vocal members of the evangelical community have identified significant traumatic events as God's judgment. Events like 9-11 or the earthquake in Haiti. Not surprisingly, these comments received a great deal of criticism. Now, there's certainly something to be said for humility and tact, something that is often lacking when this topic is brought up. But the response from Christians in the United States looked less like a rebuke about bad form and more like a rebuke about a bad topic. When it comes to God's judgment, we tend to treat God sort of like we treat Uncle George. Let me explain what I mean. 75% of families have an Uncle George, and likewise, 75% of statistics are made up on the spot. Uncle George may go by a different name in your family, but he's the uncle that, as a kid, you always wanted to come to your birthday parties. He was the uncle that would slip you a drink of his soda or his coffee when your mom and your dad weren't looking. He always bought you the coolest gifts. He's the uncle that took you to Phillies games and bought you a hot dog and a soda that was as big as you were and then got you both on the fan cam by doing the funky chicken with the Philly fanatic. (laughs) Uncle George is usually the greatest uncle that ever lived, except for when he's angry. Most of the time, you and your family love Uncle George and the things that he does, and you love to talk about him with your friends. But the second that anger and Uncle George are mentioned in the same sentence, the room gets eerily quiet and uncomfortable. Uncle George has an anger problem. It's the part about him that nobody likes. I believe that most Christians... at some point in their lives as they have read about the judgments that God has poured out in history or maybe hear some of the the accusations that the new atheist movement levels against him regarding those same judgments, honestly question to themselves, does God have a bit of an anger problem? Can a God who judges so severely really be good and loving and kind and righteous? Are his judgments inconsistent with his character? Those are good and important questions. And I think most Christians ask them. I hope you ask questions like that. However, I suspect that our discomfort regarding God's judgment stems from asking those questions or hearing those questions and then trying to ignore them rather than answer them. One of the things I want to do this morning is affirm for you that God is good and loving and kind and righteous, but that He's also big enough for your questions. He is a God who has made Himself known to us through His Word, 
through His creation and through His Son. And He desires to be known by us. His actions are always consistent with His character and His judgment is no different. Now, before we jump into our passage, I want to give you a few basic reasons why this is a good topic to talk about. Why it's a good thing to talk about God's judgment. And these aren't comprehensive reasons. They're they're just a few of them. But number one, God's primary method, His primary means of revealing His character is through His actions. This is true of all persons. How do I know my wife's character? Does she simply tell me what she is like? No, I, I get a sense of who she is by watching how she acts, how she behaves, how she responds to certain things. And God is the same way. Scripture is a mixture of propositional statements about God's character and then illustrations of that character through narratives of how He has acted in history. What has He done? How has He responded to specific things? What pleases Him? What displeases Him? All of those things are rooted in His character and how He judges, when He judges, and why He judges reveal specific things about Him that are good to talk about. A second reason why this is a good topic to talk about is God's judgment provides the context for grace. Grace is a big deal around here. It should be. It's part of our name. It's foundational to our beliefs. And it's the means by which we are saved. But what are we saved from? What gives grace its significance? Why do we need it? God's judgment provides the answer for all of those questions. Without judgment, there is no grace. And when it is shown in light of judgment, the grace of God is magnified. Its wonder is fully, prominently displayed. Take, for example, the well-known parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. In that parable, God the Father is represented by the, the father of the prodigal son. And part of what makes that father so amazing and floors us with His grace is knowing how that, that father could have responded to his son. He didn't have to welcome him back into his family. He could have turned him back out on the street. He could have disowned him completely. And if he welcomed him back into his house, he could have brought him back in as a servant, not as a son. Knowing how he could have responded makes how he actually responded much more profound and significant and wonderful. Judgment gives us the context for grace. Thirdly, God's judgment serves as a warning for those who are spared. There are specific reasons why God judges, and all of them are tied to sin and rebellion in His creation. God judges sin. It's inconsistent with His character to permit sin to go unpunished, and the call on those who observe God's judgment on another person or group of people is to repent and avoid the same fate. Now, our passage this morning is found in the book of 2 Kings. We're going to begin in verse 18 of chapter 24 and go through the end of chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find that on page 387 in the Pew Bibles. This passage chronicles for us the fall of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And this passage appears with some variation in two other portions of Scripture. 
chapters 39 and 52 of Jeremiah. The repetition of this passage is an indication that this event is one of the most significant occurrences of God's judgment in history. It's, it's not meant to be ignored. It's in Scripture in three different places. It's valuable for us in, in thinking through a theology of God's judgment. So please follow along as I read. 2 Kings 24.18 through the end of chapter 25. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all of this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. Now, Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, in the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled toward the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had gone over to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, and the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away all the censers and the sprinkling bowls, all that were made of pure gold or silver. The bronze from the two pillars, the sea and the movable stands, which Solomon had made for the temple of the Lord, was more than could be weighed. Each pillar was 27 feet high. The bronze capital on top of one pillar was four and a half feet high and was decorated with a network and pomegranates of bronze all around. The other pillar with its network was similar. The commander of the guard took his prisoner, Sarai, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the priest next in rank, 
and the three doorkeepers. Of those still in the city, he took the officer in charge of the fighting men and five royal advisors. He also took the secretary, who was chief officer in charge of conscripting the people of the land, and sixty of his men who were found in the city. Nebuzaradan and the commander took them all and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. There at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So Judah went into captivity, away from her land. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, appointed Gadaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to be over the people he had left behind in Judah. When all the army officers and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gadaliah as governor, they came to Gadaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, Johanan, son of Kareah, Saraiah, son of Tanhumeth, the Natapathite, Jaazaniah, the son of the Maacathite, and their men. Gadaliah took an oath to reassure them and their men. Do not be afraid of the Babylonian officials, he said. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. On the seventh, in the seventh month, however, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, who was of royal blood, came with ten men and assassinated Gadaliah, and also the men of Judah and the Babylonians who were with him at Mizpah. At this, all the people from the least to the greatest, together with the army officers, fled to Egypt for fear of the Babylonians. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin from prison on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived. Verse 20 of chapter 24 tells us how we are to understand this historical event. It's not primarily the subjugation of one nation under another. It is the result of God's anger at His people. His patience has reached its limit. The sins of His people have reached the point of no return. And the author of 2 Kings wants the people of God to know how they are to understand what has taken place. The destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians is God's judgment on His people. He has thrust them out of His presence. I was going to crack a joke there this morning about if, how if you want to see an earthly example of this, come to my house when my daughters are teenagers and they start bringing home boys. But then I was taking my daughter to Sunday school this morning and, and she had a hard time when I dropped her off. She didn't want me to leave her. And uh, Luke Davini brought her a Thomas the Tank Engine <laughs> to play with. So uh, Pastor Joel Luke has earned himself a probationary period. If uh, <laughs> uh, Don't ever get to the point where you think you can't learn anything from children. Sometimes I think they're the only ones that have it figured out. But uh, this was God thrusting Israel out of His presence, the nation of Judah out of His presence. As hard of a pill as that is for the nation of Judah to swallow at this point, 
I would imagine that it still helped them to make some sense of the devastation that had come upon them. The only way that their suffering can have any meaning at all is if there is some ultimate purpose behind it. Whenever tragedy strikes, our natural inclination is to try and make sense of it all. Why did this happen? And the author of Second Kings points his audience to the source of their tragedy's meaning, God Himself. This event, along with Katrina, 9-11, the earthquakes in Haiti and Japan, World Wars I and II, and every other event in history that has left a wounded and broken people in its wake did not occur senselessly, meaninglessly, or in vain. It occurred because God has a plan and He's working it out. This is foundational to our understanding of God's judgment. He does not act trivially. He acts with purpose. I come away from this passage with many questions. Why so much devastation? Why the severity? Did God overreact? What is His purpose? What what are His reasons? How do we make sense of His judgment? I'm going to try something a little bit different this morning and present this passage to you in an analogy that hopefully helps to answer these questions and help us to understand why God is the God who judges. Have you ever seen a blurb on the news or maybe a TV special about a building that is being demolished? I've seen a couple TV shows where there's this old, decrepit building that needs to come down. The problem is that it's in the middle of a city. There's nowhere for it to go. You can't just knock it down. You can't just blow it up. If you do, you better have awfully good insurance because you're going to have more than one building to rebuild. In situations like that, demolitions experts are called in whose areas of expertise expertise are explosives. Their job in these situations is to implode the building, to bring the whole thing down on top of itself. And I love watching them do it. It's incredible to watch. One minute you have this towering skyscraper that looks out over the entire city or maybe the sprawling athletic stadium in the middle of downtown. And the next minute, it's nothing but a pile of rubble. And if the the demolitions experts are really good, which most of them are, there's not a single concrete block left standing on another. And that's essentially what we have here in this passage. At the beginning of it, Judah is like a building. The nation of Judah is like a building. It's got some issues, but it's whole. It's, It's still standing. But by the end of our passage, there is nothing left. It's nothing but a pile of ash and rubble, completely uninhabited. Why so much devastation? The bigger question that that question points to is, why does God judge? Or to ask it another way, why did God bring this house down? There are specific reasons why you tear down a building, and I want to use those reasons to provide some answers to the theological question before us. Why God judges? So the question is, why did God bring the house down? Here's one answer. The infrastructure was bad. Okay, The infrastructure was bad. Sometimes 
Termites move in and they feast on the studs in your wall. But sometimes water seeps in and slowly over time rots the supporting beams. Sometimes the entire framework shifts off of its foundation and it becomes unstable. Regardless of the cause, when the support structure of a building goes bad, the building becomes dangerous and it has to come down. In the case of the nation of Judah, their support structure in question was its leadership, its kings. At this particular point in the history of Judah, the king is a man named Zedekiah. And Zedekiah gets the brunt of the fury in this episode. His reign is relatively short. It's only 11 years, the last two of which are spent under siege in Jerusalem. And his fate at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar is a bleak one. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel had each given specific prophecies regarding what would happen to Zedekiah on this day. And both of them came true. Jeremiah prophesied that Zedekiah would see Nebuchadnezzar face to face and then be taken to Babylon where he would remain until his death. That happens. Ezekiel had given a little bit more of a a cryptic prophecy. Ezekiel's prophecy was that Zedekiah would be taken to Babylon but that he would not see it. The meaning of that probably wasn't quite clear until you see what happens to Zedekiah. He's taken to Nebuchadnezzar blinded, and then taken to Babylon. So he's taken, but still does not see it. When the city of Jerusalem finally falls, two years after the siege began, Zedekiah literally runs for his life. And unfortunately for him, he's captured and taken to face Nebuchadnezzar, the man against whom he's rebelled. The last thing that he sees before his eyes are gouged out is the slaughter of his sons. And based on his age, I would guess those children were no more than ten years old. He's then led to Babylon in chains and imprisoned there for the rest of his life. As a father, I cannot think of a more torturous experience than being forced to watch someone else slaughter my children. I can only imagine that the final image that he saw before his vision was taken from him haunted him for the rest of his days. That's one of the most terrible things that I can imagine. Why would God do that? Why would he level a judgment that severe on this man? Zedekiah's legacy leaves us with the message that leadership is something that God takes very, very seriously. His suffering under the judgment of God is so severe because he had the greatest responsibility before God. God had made it clear even in the Mosaic Covenant 900 years earlier and 500 years before there was a single king that reigned in Israel that the king, when the people asked for one, was to root his reign in his relationship with God. He was supposed to lead the people in their relationship with God. He was supposed to protect them from foreign armies, false gods, 
and dependence on anything other than God himself. The people were God's people. They belonged to him. The king was a steward of God's prized possession. Care of them was something that God was intimately concerned with. The books of First and Second Kings are not typical historical reference works. As you read them, you, you kind of get a sense of that. They chronicle the reigns of every king following David and Solomon until the collapse of the entire system in this passage. Most historical accounts of the kings of nations analyze their political effectiveness, they measure their wealth, their conquests and their failures, their laws, and things of that nature. They're concerned mostly with, with polity and, and uh, the effectiveness of their reign. First and Second Kings does very little of that. The intent of these two books is to evaluate each king on the basis of how that king fulfilled his uh, responsibilities in the eyes of God. Only two kings after David and Solomon are given a completely positive evaluation. Hezekiah and Josiah. Zedekiah's reign is summarized for us in a single verse. 2 Kings 24.19 Here's the sum total of his reign. This is what Zedekiah is noted for as it concerns his kingship. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. That's his legacy. Zedekiah did at least two things that earned him this legacy and brought God's judgment upon him. First, he spurned God's word. Idolatry increased in the city of Jerusalem and in the nation of Judah as a whole under his reign. And when he was warned, rebuked, or pleaded with to repent by the prophet Jeremiah, he refuses to listen. In fact, he often abused and imprisoned Jeremiah for having the audacity to call him out on his sin. That's the first thing he does. Secondly, he fails to protect God's people. God warned Zedekiah repeatedly through the prophet Zedekiah not to rebel against Babylon, assuring him that it would mean certain defeat and the end of Judah if he did. But Zedekiah rebelled anyway. And as a result, thousands of people died either by starvation under siege or by the sword when the city finally falls. And thousands more are led into exile in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar slaughters Zedekiah's sons to send him a message. It shows him that his reign and his dynasty are over. They end with him because of his poor decisions. Ultimately, God in His justice takes the sons of Zedekiah for the children that his wicked reign has cost God. That's the first reason. The infrastructure is bad. The second reason for why God brought down this house, the environment was no longer fit for life. Okay, The environment was no longer fit for life. Most of us have probably seen a house that has been condemned. Buildings are condemned and demolished because they have degraded to the point where they are no longer hospitable for life. Maybe the roof has caved in, or maybe the foundation has cracked, or maybe you have an infestation of rats or, or cockroaches 
Or perhaps the entire house has been contaminated by mold. Whatever the circumstances, the end result is that no one can live there safely. The hazards that are posed by the building must be removed if the area is to become suitable for life again. A similar situation has occurred in Judah. Only rather than having a building that poses a hazard to them, their culture and their way of life has become toxic. It's very interesting to me as I read this passage to see the detail that the author goes into while he's describing the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuzaradan. This portion of Second Kings is a type of literature known as narrative. And one of the prominent features of narrative in Scripture is selectivity by the author, meaning that what they chose to incorporate, the details that they include, are usually significant. Notice the things that the author mentions are destroyed. First of all, we have Zedekiah, the king. He's destroyed. Then when Nebuzaradan comes into Jerusalem, he destroys the temple, the palace, every important building, and finally, the walls of Jerusalem itself. Then once everything of note has been destroyed, the people are rounded up and herded like cattle to Babylon. Why? Why did God have the Babylonians absolutely level everything in Jerusalem? I believe that He let them destroy everything because they had become hazardous to the people of Judah, much like a building that should be condemned. All of the things that the author mentioned, the king, the temple, the palace, and Jerusalem itself, had become the, the things that the people used to identify themselves. Okay, they, they defined themselves by these things. That was a bad thing because God had made it clear to them that He was to be their measure and definition. He was to be prominent because as good as a king was, as good as the temple was, as good as Jerusalem was, they were not ultimate things. They had no power to save or to satisfy beyond a surface level. God, on the other hand, is the only one in whom those things can be found without limit. Listen to how God had warned His people in Deuteronomy 8 before they settled in the land that the Babylonians take them out of. This is what Moses says to the people. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, His laws, and His decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and your flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, For it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant which He swore to your forefathers as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. 
But Judah had forgotten God. And as God had warned, they were satisfied in their accomplishments. They loved their king because it made them just like all the other nations around them. It gave them someone who could lead them in battle, forgetting that God had promised that He would go before them, that the battle belonged to Him. They loved their temple not because it was a symbol of God's presence with them, but because it was an absolute marvel of architecture. Notice the detail in this passage of the temple trappings that are taken or destroyed. This was Solomon's temple. It was a a wonder at that time. It was beautiful. Truly a work of art. We read about those pillars. They were immense. and, And just a wonder to behold. And they were proud of that. Their hands had built that. But it's a telling commentary on the hearts of the people when they are more concerned with what articles have been taken out of the temple than they are with the fact that the God whom they supposedly serve is no longer in it. And lastly, they loved Jerusalem because it was the cultural center of Judah. Every significant building was there. The king lived there. The temple was there. It was David's city. And most of all, it was unconquerable. It was perched on a hill with massive walls around the entire city. Surely the one thing that they could depend on for security was Jerusalem, right? And to its credit, it holds out for two years against the most powerful army in the ancient Near East. Part of that was because the Babylonians get distracted by Egypt for a time. But eventually, in the end, the city and the walls that the people place so much confidence in is nothing but ashes and rubble. In some ways, I think of this event as an intervention. Judah had a big problem. And this is God stepping in to get their attention. And just like in an an intervention for a drug addict, the last thing that you let them do when they finish rehab is go back to their old environment. They need a clean slate and a fresh start. And that's exactly what Judah is left with when God has finished His judgment. All the things that have been stumbling blocks for them in the past are gone. They have nothing left to depend in except for God Himself, which is exactly where they need to be. That's the second reason. The third reason for why God brought down this house is there is a grander vision. There is a grander vision. Most buildings are not demolished and then left in that state. Typically, you tear a building down in order to build build something new and greater in its place. For example, on March 21st, 2004, Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia was imploded to make room for the sports complex that is now home to Citizens Bank Park and Lincoln Financial Field. The vet was no longer suitable for its purpose. Over the years, its flaws and its shortcomings had become more and more apparent And finally, the time came where something new, something better was needed in order to take its place. But for that to happen, for that vision to come to fruition, the vet had to be demolished. God's judgment reveals a similar principle. Perhaps the clearest message of God's judgment is that things are not as they should be. Something greater has been called for. There is a grander vision. 
Things cannot go on in their current state because it's not supposed to be this way. God has something much better in store. And the end of 2 Kings draws our attention to this fact. Our passage this morning is certainly not a cheerful one. So it may surprise you when I say that it actually ends on a note of hope rather than a note of despair. The release of Jehoiachin from prison, while it may initially seem out of place and unimportant, is in fact extremely significant. Jehoiachin was the king of Judah prior to Zedekiah. He inherited the throne from his father Jehoiakim at the age of 18 and he reigned for a whopping three months before Nebuchadnezzar decided that he didn't like him. And in order to exert some influence in the region, Nebuchadnezzar deports Jehoiachin, locks him in prison in Babylon, and places his uncle Madaniah on the throne and changes Madaniah's name to Zedekiah, sort of as a, as a display of his authority over him. Despite the abbreviated nature of Jehoiachin's reign, three months was more than enough time for him to develop a reputation of being wicked. He was a wicked king, just like his father before him, Second Kings tells us. He spends 37 years as a prisoner in Babylon until Nebuchadnezzar's son, evil Merodach, becomes king and releases him. And you have there, uh, in the midst of this devastation, a little picture of grace. For some reason, the author of Second Kings finds the fate of this one man significant in the midst of the, the fall and the deportation of Judah. I mean, I, I get that it's a nice story for Jehoiachin and all, but the rest of the inhabitants of Judah that are currently in Babylon will be there for another 44 years when this event takes place. What about them? Yeah, why is it significant for the people? And how does this event point to the fact that God has something better in store? The answer is rooted in one simple fact a principle that is inextricably related to the issue of God's judgment. God is faithful. He's faithful to His Word. He's faithful to His character. And He's faithful to His promises. God had promised to judge the people if they broke their covenant relationship with Him. They did, and so He judged them. He was faithful in that. However, God had also promised them that He would deliver them from His judgment. That His judgment was not meant to destroy them, but to discipline them as God disciplines, as a father disciplines a son that He loves. Nearly 400 years before the fall of Judah, God had made a promise to Israel's second and historically greatest king, David. He promised David that he would give him an everlasting dynasty because he had ruled in faithfulness. He was a man after God's own heart. But with the fall and imprisonment of Zedekiah, who is a descendant of David, that promise now seems void. The line of David has apparently come to an end. Zedekiah and his sons are dead. But David had another descendant still living, though he was also in exile. Jehoiachin. From a historical perspective, it's, it's really unclear why evil Merodach released Jehoiachin from prison. Some think that he was trying to curry favor with the Jewish population in Babylon when he took over. 
Others think that perhaps uh, during a period where he himself was imprisoned by Nebuchadnezzar for ruling poorly, he actually befriended Jehoiachin. And when he himself becomes king, he releases him to honor their friendship. But whatever the historical reason, the theological reason and the reason that makes this a hopeful conclusion is that God is upholding His promise to David. And if God is faithful to David, if He's faithful to hold, to continue that promise to him, then you better believe that God will be faithful to Judah. And He was. Prior to his exile to Babylon, Jehoiachin had been named Jeconiah. Nebuchadnezzar had changed his name as a symbol of authority, just like he did with with Zedekiah. Listen to this passage from Matthew chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. This is why that name change is significant. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. Abiad, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Atzor. Atzor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. I'll get there eventually. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Through Jehoiachin, God continued the line of David until it reached the Son in whom all of God's promises to His creation will be fulfilled. Jesus Christ. God's judgment tells us that all is not as it should be in this world. That sin is a contagion that pollutes every aspect of our lives and every aspect of God's creation. All pain, suffering, Poverty and injustice can be traced back to the saturating presence of sin in this world and our attraction to it. On top of that, sin pervades even my soul. And when God created this world, His vision for what life should be like in it did not include sin. That is not supposed to be a part of it. It's entirely inconsistent with His character and contrary to our good, despite its allure of temporary but instant gratification. So God promises to judge sin in all of its manifestations, not simply to satisfy His righteous character, but to release from bondage the hearts and lives that sin holds. In faithfulness to that promise, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world for the purpose of judging sin. And in that context, God displays His grace in its most spectacular form. Because God didn't judge us for the sin that Christ found in us. Instead, He took the sins of the world and He crucified them in His Son. He delivered His Son over to death in a most excruciating fashion and enacted the most terrible judgment that has ever been rendered in all of existence. God the Father forsook His Son. He thrust Him out of His presence. He poured out His wrath upon the exact 
and perfect image of His flawless character. Why? Because God is not merely just and righteous. He is good, loving, gracious, and compassionate. Even in His judgment. But Christ's purpose was not completed with His first coming. We read Isaiah 61 this morning for our Scripture reading. That is the vision of what life should be like. It's the vision of the reign of Christ on this earth where sin is judged, His people are redeemed, the poor receive mercy, the violated receive justice, Christ is exalted, and the people of God live in unity with Him. There is a grander vision. It is what God has promised to achieve in Christ. And as His judgment illustrates, He is faithful to His promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your judgment. We thank You that the sins of of men like Joseph Coney and, and Adolf Hitler and Steve Wilson will all be punished. Every sin that has ever been committed, all of its manifestations are under Your curse and You will be satisfied. You will have Your vengeance, either in Christ or in eternity. Father, as Jeremiah lamented the fall and the destruction of Jerusalem, as he was left there to see the suffering and devastation that you brought upon your people, he took faith in in your faithfulness. He placed his hope in your mercy and your grace because he knew that you were faithful to your word. And Father, this morning, we are in awe of your grace. We thank you for it. You pour that out on us more than judgment. We don't deserve it, Father, but that is who You are. That's what You do. We love You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen.